And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have seized the hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Now, I learned this week a new word for me. Um, Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, It's a word called doom scrolling. And it was added to the Cambridge Dictionary in 2021. And it means to scroll through negative news stories, one after another, scrolling through on the smartphone. And there's lots to flick through, isn't there? Because there is darkness in the world. We stand back and think about 2022, there was much darkness. And perhaps as we look forward into 2023, well, the question we're asking, well, is there hope? What hope is there in darkness? Well, we're beginning a new series for the next 10 weeks in 1 Samuel. And in the first few verses, we meet a man called Elkanah and his family. And they live at a time in Israel, at the time of the judges. And their world is remarkably similar. The last few chapters of the book of Judges are some of the most shocking and distressing chapters to read in the Bible. We read of the darkness in Israel. And a repeated refrain comes up more frequently as you come to the end of the book of Judges. And it's the final verse as well. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king no leadership, crucially, no leadership that would lead the people to the word of God so that they might flourish and enjoy his blessing. But instead, a culture perpetuated by pride, characterized by a vacuum of the knowledge of God. And we see that picked out in 2 verse 3, that issue of pride. Talk, not more so, talk no more so very proudly. Let not your arrogance come from your mouth. Now, the author, Karen Swallow Pryor, in her book that she's written, looking at virtues in various works of literature, says this. um, If I can find the page. She says, There are various qualities of such a society bereft of Christ, but one quality that stands out is pride. And she has in mind the contemporary American South, which she 
he says, is a culture that has the shell of Christianity, but where the substance has gone. And I guess if there's a shell in the American South, we might say, in 21st century Britain, the shell, it's crumbling. But she observes that this culture that's departed from the gospel, well, where that happens, pride leaps to the fore. And in her words, a persistent pride, placing faith in oneself. And we see it in the world around us, great problems, but the attitude is, we can still fix it. We know what to do. And it's pride opposed to God, hostile to his voice and hostile to his people. That famous Alistair Campbell saying, we don't do God. But the darkness remains. And so what hope is there in darkness? Where can we look for real hope of change? And what encouragement is there for God's people who, well, are looked down on by those who oppose him? Well, the book of 1 Samuel points us to solid hope. And it's solid hope that's found in the Lord God himself. It starts in a land with a leadership crisis. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what's right in their own eyes. But 1 Samuel's not a leadership manual. It's a book about God. It's a book about how God brings salvation to a people in darkness. And so we're going to work our way through 1 Samuel in quite big chunks. And each week we'll attempt to pull out a key verse that, that captures the heart of the passage. And so as we begin, take a look at chapter 2 and verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. What we'll see this morning is there is a reason to praise God, because in every age where there is darkness, God has a salvation plan. And so our first point this morning, well, on your sheets it says the Lord's grace displayed, and we will see that. But I wonder if the title for that point, this point should really be, Look to the Lord who saves. Look to the Lord who saves. And so we travel to Ramathim Zophim, a normal town in Ephraim. Think Reading, think Rochester, rugby. But it's notable that it's in Ephraim, because that's the reason where the darkness in in Israel, the darkness of the judges' era, is especially great. If you flick back to the start of 1 Samuel, we meet Elkanah, and he seems to be a God-fearing man. We see in verse 3 that he's taking his family annually to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But he's taking his two wives, Hannah and Penina, and the narrator draws our attention to this. Have a look at verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Hannah is named first. She seems to be his first wife, and we discover that he loves her, but she had no children. And so as we're introduced to Hannah, we meet one suffering affliction, someone with a personal darkness. Now, as a church family here at St. Helens, it's our prayer and aim together that even if imperfect at times, we aim to be loving and kind and sensitive to one another, supporting one another in times of distress, sadness, or pain. But for Hannah, life in this family is miserable. And Penina is the reason. Perhaps because Hannah's womb was closed, Elkanah married Penina to continue the family line. Her name means fruitful. And she had children, but she is proud. 
She's a rival. She's boasting in herself. And she looks down on Hannah and she provokes her and taunts her. We'll read from verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. It seems that Penina taunts Hannah because Hannah keeps worshipping the Lord, even though he's closed her womb. Every time they go up to the temple, well, perhaps she's saying things like, Hannah, do you still really trust the Lord? He doesn't seem to have done you much good. And so Hannah weeps in her distress, and she won't eat. And it doesn't seem like anyone can help. And it's a bit like Hannah's a microcosm of life in Israel, a mini picture of life in the darkness, and particularly a picture of life as a faithful servant of the Lord God in a world proudly opposed to him. And so what does she do? Well, the turning point is verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Hannah rose. The word order in the Hebrew is the other way round. It starts the sentence with the word rose. It's emphatic. It's determined. Rose, Hannah. And Hannah gets up to take action, but she doesn't get up to shout her rival down. She gets up to pray to the Lord. She pours out her soul before him in her anxiety and vexation. And it's a key moment at the start of the book. Hannah looks to the Lord for help. Verse 11, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She looks to the Lord for help. In darkness, where do we look for reversal? We often hear that phrase, don't we? We need to look to. I've noticed it said in all kinds of settings. We need to look to science. We need to look to the markets. We need to look to a new manager. We need to look to new leadership. And of course, they each have their place and their remit, but it's the attitude of human pride that says we can fix it all. We just need to look to a few more laws, a few more pounds, a bit more education, a bit more education, a bit younger. And human pride won't look to the Lord for help. And in fact, it will even look down on the Lord's people and refuse to listen. But Hannah here is humble. And she calls on the Lord, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me. And remember me. Those words, affliction, remember, they pick up um, key covenant words. Hannah's prayer is full of a language of understanding of the Lord. In Genesis God made unconditional promises to Abraham to gather a vast people for himself and to give them a land and to bless them. He made a covenant. And in a little bit of time, this people grew, but they were in Egypt. And instead of being blessed in the land, they were enslaved. And they called to the Lord. And we read that he saw their affliction and he remembered them. See, for the Lord to remember his people is not that he sort of forgot that they were there when he got distracted one day. 
but it's for him to act in accordance with his covenant promises. And so in his kindness, he hears Hannah's prayer and he remembers, he acts in grace in response to the prayer of the one whose name means grace. And so verse 20, we read, In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. It's a great reversal for Hannah, a great personal reversal for her, a reversal that she goes on to rejoice in, and we see it in our key verse, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derives my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. And as we go on to look at Hannah's second prayer in chapter 2, well, we see she understands this child is about much more than just her. Samuel is about God's salvation plan. And I think it's helpful to see that in the story, that this story is not here as a promise that if we ask God to remove a particular cause of personal distress, he will always do it. It's not here as a promise that if we ask God for a child, he will always give us one. Hannah's story is a picture for a people in darkness of how the Lord graciously acts in salvation. Look to the Lord who saves. And her second prayer shows her understanding of this. And it's our second point, the Lord's salvation foretold. The Lord's salvation foretold. Now, a few days ago, we met for one of our regular planning meetings where we think about the upcoming preaching and the services that are coming up. Um, And discussing this passage, someone suggested the illustration of a river. Now, where I grew up was near the source of a river, the River Blackwater. It's not a big river at all. It, It starts in a small copse on the edge of a town, and there's a sign that says the source of the River Blackwater. And by the sign is a boggy bit of ground, and it's surrounded by trees and bushes. And as you walk through the woods, well, it's just a small stream. After 22 miles, it's grown and it joins another river, the River Loddon. After another 28 miles, it's grown and it joins the River Thames. And as it flows, it grows. And it grows into a broad, wide, flowing river. And chapters 1 and 2, well, they work a bit like that together. Chapter 1 shows us some small beginnings. Hannah in a normal town, in a corner of Israel. But in chapter 2, her prayer shows us that this small start is like a tributary, tributary that flows into a great river of salvation that the Lord God will establish and that will powerfully flow to its glorious end. Chapter 2 is showing us God's pattern for salvation. And as God's salvation makes great advances forward, it makes it from small beginnings even out of weakness and affliction. Think back to Sarah, Abraham's wife, but then the mother of Isaac, and God's family groaned. Then Rebecca, another barren woman, afflicted. But then the Lord gives to her Joseph, who saves his people, and God's salvation progresses. Think of Israel under Egypt, oppressed, but they call on the Lord who brings them out of Egypt, and there's a great reversal. Think supremely of the Lord Jesus weak and afflicted on the cross. But this was the moment of his greatest glory and exaltation, victory over sin and death and evil, raised from the dead, salvation secured, a complete reversal. So perhaps the heading for this point should not so much be the Lord's salvation foretold, but the Lord's salvation advances. 
And Hannah's prayer shows us what it looks like and how he will accomplish it. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Now, I tend to get the words exult and exalt confused. And so preparing this morning, I did some work on that, checked the dictionary. Um, And if you like me and you get muddled on those, Hannah's heart exults in the Lord. That is, she praises him. She rejoices in him. And it's because her strength is exalted in the Lord. That is, she has been lifted up. She rose up and called on him in affliction, and he has raised her up. And so she's full of joy as she's considered this work of the Lord, this salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. And again, it's full of the language of God's salvation in the Exodus. The Lord, the rock, who rescued his people out of Egypt and led them through the wilderness to the promised lands. He's the Lord who will save and raise up his people. And he's the Lord who will defeat their enemies. And I think this makes sense of the slightly surprising phrase alongside her rejoicing. Did you see in verse 1, my mouth derides my enemies. My mouth derides my enemies. Why does she say this in her prayer? Literally, my wife, my, my mouth is wide open against my enemies. And it seems to be because God's salvation, well, it both rescues and vindicates his people as his enemies are brought down. We thought last week about women in the Krala village who were persecuted for following Jesus, afflicted by the proud and the arrogant. And it might be your experience to have been looked down on or persecuted because you're faithful to the Lord Jesus. We heard in our prayer meeting back in November from some of our young people in secondary schools, in one school asking to run a Christian meeting alongside all kinds of other meetings, but being told no. In another, the Christian group allowed to meet, but given just tiny amounts of time to meet, kind of insulting amounts of time. Perhaps we've had experiences or can think of experiences where the Bible's good teaching on matters that really matter is dismissed without any proper consideration, perhaps in the classroom or in parents' evening or in Westminster. It's the normal experience for those who follow Jesus to be looked down on by the proud and the arrogant who ignore him. And yet in the midst of a world like this, the Lord has a plan to bring salvation and to lift up his people. And so Hannah's mouth is wide open to declare the work of her Lord, the rock, to the proud who oppose and afflict her. Because his salvation delivers a great reversal. And just listen as we read from verse 3 through 8, and just listen out for that reversal. Hannah says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. 
for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. A great reversal. Not a Marxist manifesto about bringing down the bourgeoisie and lifting up the proletariat. This is about what salvation looks like. Those who are strong, mighty, arrogant, full and at ease, the proud Peninas who oppose God's people will be brought down. And those who humble themselves before him will be raised up. Indeed, did you see it in verse 6? The Lord is the one who gives life and takes away. He kills and brings to life. He brings down to shell and raises up. It's very striking language. It's the language of total salvation. Those who come in humility saved. Those who oppose in pride judged. And Hannah has experienced the Lord bringing her womb to life. And from it, the tributaries of his greater salvation flow. And everyone who comes to him in humility can experience that life, new life, life in his family, life eternally. But how will this salvation come? How will it be accomplished? Well, there's just a hint in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This reference to a king and anointed at the end, it seems remarkable that Hannah speaks of God's king and his anointed. But perhaps it's not given her knowledge of the Lord. A king has been anticipated in Genesis and Deuteronomy. And her prayer here, if you like, well, it points us further downstream on God's salvation plan. He'll accomplish his great reversal through his king. And so we're to be looking for one who the Lord exalts, who the Lord raises up and enthrones as his anointed, as his Messiah. And by the end of 2 Samuel, the second part of of the book, well, King David has been established as God's anointed in Israel. And he, at the end of 2 Samuel, prays a prayer. And it echoes the language of Hannah's prayer. And it's as if the two prayers bookend 1 and 2 Samuel. Hannah's prayer looks forward to God's salvation. And David's prayer looks back at the reversal with great thanksgiving. Listen to what David says. And you'll see the language that it echoes. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge my shield, and the strength of my salvation. See, David recognizes God is the one who saves, and he has exalted him, and the river is flowing. And David knows that there's an everlasting king to look forward to. Around New Year's Day, I saw an article of 23 songs for 2023, and I guess it's the sort of article that gets marginally harder to write each year, at least till the end of the century. Well, perhaps we might form a better collection of songs for 2023. How about a collection of salvation songs? We've got Hannah's here in chapter 2. There's David's in 2 Samuel chapter 22. And then in Luke's gospel, we find another one, sung by another woman of humble estate, and it echoes Hannah's song, a moment where God's salvation will drive forward from small beginnings. We find Mary carrying a baby, Conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she sings in praise, My soul magnifies the Lord, 
and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Because the baby she carries, well, he is the one who will accomplish God's salvation fully. In weakness and affliction, through his death on the cross, the Lord Jesus paid the penalty for sin so that all who humbly turn to him for forgiveness will be lifted up. And God has exalted him at his right hand as king. And he will return to put an end to all pride and arrogance and rebellion. The river of God's salvation flows powerfully. However dark the the darkness is, God has a salvation plan. And there's one more song perhaps we would think of. We saw it last week in Revelation 7. A vision of salvation accomplished. A people gathered round the throne and they sang salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, three implications for us. It doesn't take much to see that the darkness caused by human pride and rebellion is real. But there is hope for a world which will humble itself and look to the Lord who has a great salvation plan. And so in one sense, these verses are a challenge to the persistent pride of placing faith in oneself, of refusing to acknowledge our need for salvation. It's a challenge that asks us, will we admit that we don't know it all, we aren't as wise as we think, and that we need some help? It might be that someone hears this, though, and they just roll their eyes. I don't need the Lord. It's not for me. I'm fine, thanks. Well, God has a salvation plan, and he will accomplish it. And it is a great reversal. Chapter 2, verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And then the sobering words, um, down in verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. But it might be that you're here this morning and you recognize your need. You recognize that in many ways you've been arrogantly opposing the Lord. Well, the invitation is to come to him humbly for forgiveness and submit to his King Jesus in dependence on his death and resurrection. And verse 8, he lifts up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor, salvation. Second, I've switched the order on the handout here. And second implication, waiting And this seems to be a theme in 1 Samuel. Hannah and Elkanah wait before God for him to give them Samuel. They will need to wait to see God's salvation plan unfolding in Israel. And we too will wait on the Lord. We said earlier that Hannah's story is not a promise that that all causes of personal distress or affliction will necessarily be removed if we call on the Lord. But we see in verse 8, so verse 9, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. See, the Lord is committed in covenant love to his people. And so when we find proud or arrogant taunts come at us, or we're distressed or afflicted like Hannah, well, we're to persevere in praying to the Lord. Persevere in praying to the Lord. He's the Lord of reversals. That doesn't mean we wouldn't ask for help for another or share our burdens. It's not to say suffer in silence. It's not to say we might sometimes need to leave a situation or report a wrongdoing. But we pray to the Lord of reversals, who is able 
And we can trust him knowing his salvation plan is sure and the great reversal is certain. The Lord will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Which leads us back to chapter 2, verse 1, and praise. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derives my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. The Lord has a plan for salvation and he will accomplish it however dark the darkness seems. And whilst Hannah waited for the king to come, we know him today as a perfect leader. The risen Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God and he reigns. He's the king who leads us in truth and life. He's the leader whose word brings flourishing. He's the shepherd whose goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our lives. I was chatting to someone before Christmas and just commenting on how valuable good leadership is. And they said, yes, it really does matter. Isn't it good news that Jesus is our leader? God has a plan for salvation and he will accomplish it. My heart exalts in the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have a wonderful plan for salvation which advances, which gives hope to a world in darkness. Thank you that through the Lord Jesus you will bring down pride and rebellion forever and lift up your people, all who humbly come to you. Please help us today to keep looking to you and trusting your great salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.